Welcome to the social side of sport, where SPKN's Meg Wilson joins renowned sports sociologist Dr. Jay Coakley in discussions about the relationship between society and sport. Each episode provides a unique perspective as they delve into various sociocultural structures, patterns, and organizations involved in and surrounding sport. They discuss the positive impact sports have on individual people and society as a whole, economically, financially, and socially. The social side of sport provides a quick glimpse into the actions and behavior of sports teams and their players through the eyes of a sociologist. Welcome back to another episode of our discussions with sports sociologist, Dr. Jay Coakley, Professor Emeritus at the University of Colorado, Colorado Springs. Today, we're going to dive into the topic of organized youth sports and their place in and effects on our society. Jay, as always, it's a pleasure to speak with you, and I'm looking forward to our discussion today. Well, it's good to be here, and this is one of my favorite topics. <laughs> Great. Well, let's start right out then with a, a bit of clarification. What does organized sport mean compared to, say, disorganized sport or informal? Well, yeah, I think the categories that I've always used to make those distinctions are spontaneous play versus informal games versus organized sports and and organized sports have rules the rules are enforced usually by a third party a referee an umpire and and they're usually structured and controlled by adults so which is very different than the informal games the pickup games that kids can play on their own and the spontaneous play that that kids engage in up through the age of seven or eight years old and some engage in spontaneous play after that but they're kind of discouraged because a lot of people see spontaneous play as aimless and a waste of time which is not true but uh, organized sports are seen as being learning experiences seen as having built-in kinds of lessons that are that young people learn people of all ages and that has to be qualified sometimes they learn those things sometimes they don't but organized sports are a part of the socialization experiences of a lot of young people especially in wealthier countries where there's a lot of resources to to get sports organized basically it takes resources to get a sport organized and you, you've spoken before about your, your play that, that you like to do, just casual. Well, what was one of the favorite things you liked to do when you were younger that was free play? Yeah, there were so many different things. You know, uh, I lived across the street from a park. And from, from where I slept in my bedroom with my three sisters and brother, I could see out the window to the basketball court at that park. And whenever anybody came over, I'd run downstairs, I'd get the ball, I'd go over there and something would happen uh, there. But I think one of my favorite things was playing wiffle ball in our backyard with the other kids in the neighborhood. And we had a two story, the back of our house was two story. So we had line, we had above the bricks on the wood pan, on the wood paneling was, you know, a triple. On the roof was a home run. And, you know, you had to be careful not to hit it into the neighbor's yard because that was out of bounds. So, you know, we we had this whole organized setup for wiffle ball in our backyard. You know, one of the things I love about free play is that there's two things. One is the ability for children to just grab a ball and say, let's play. 
they don't know the person, the, the other child. There doesn't have to be a formal introduction. You see a ball and, and they can play. And then the creativity of creating the rules, I think right. is something that really is missing in organized sport. Yeah. And, you know, that's a problem because when kids don't learn to cooperate through the process of, you know, what are the boundaries, what are the rules, how are we going to enforce the rules and so on, unless kids learn how to cooperate like that, they really enter competition without the prerequisites of playing, of knowing what fair play is and what being a good sport is. And that's one of the problems today is that kids start an organized sport so young that they've never had a chance to learn how to cooperate within the context of a game. And that, and that creates an extra chore for coaches, although a lot of coaches don't pay attention to that. They're into the competition part rather than learning how to cooperate. It's really interesting because one of the things everyone says about, you know, putting your kids into sport is that it helps them learn teamwork. Right. And that's an element that I think people really don't think about how that's missing now. Yeah. Um, and, not, not completely, but in the, in the way that you were speaking. Yeah. And teamwork is an interesting phenomenon because in sport, it's a very fluid kind of thing. And there, there is no exactly right place to be on the field. It depends upon if you're playing soccer, it depends upon where your goalie is and where your nine teammates are and where the 11 or 10 people on the other team are. So, so unless you learn how to put yourself in all the different positions on a team, it's hard to figure out where exactly you should be. And that's true in any sport. Football is a little bit of an exception because the positions are so set. But even in football, you know, depends on where where other blockers are and where your blockers are. So unless you learn uh, how to put yourself in the position of all the other players, you know, you don't really know how to cooperate and how to engage in teamwork effectively. How would you say that social changes related to family and childhood influenced the growth of organized sports in the U.S.? You know, organized sports have existed for a long time in the U.S. And, you know, they were formed way back around the turn of the 19th century and 20th century. And during the progressive era between 1900 and 1920, organized youth sports were developed and they were developed uh, basically to take immigrant kids and turn them into good little productive Americans who were loyal, patriotic, and could serve in the military and could serve in the fact, work in the factories and so on. And schools ad adopted organized sports and incorporated them into their programs. But the real, the real popular organized youth sports didn't really develop until after the Second World War in the United States. And they were basically developed in suburban areas where there were a lot of spaces, open spaces, and parents saw organized sports as a great way to socialize their sons, not their daughters at that time. So they created all these different kinds of leagues in various sports, the American sports, predominantly baseball, basketball, football, volleyball, all of those sports were created in the United States. And they were modifications of sports that came over from, from Europe. And the sports at that time were not that serious. I mean, some adults took them seriously, some kids, but they were more recreationally oriented. 
organized youth sports really didn't start to become real competitive until the 1980s, when there was kind of a perfect storm for creating highly competitive organized sports. And, and some of the things that were going on at that time were, first of all, there were a lot of families in which both parents were working, and so they needed something organized, adult supervised to put their kids in during the summer, during vacations, after school, and so on. And also, there were major changes at that time about what it meant to be a good parent. And I'm going to give you just a little bit of historical background on that. You know, Ronald Reagan, this is for people who are not old enough to remember the 1980s, which is probably most people who are going to be watching or listening to this. And Ronald Reagan was elected in 1980. And took the presidency in 1981 in January. And during his inaugural speech, he pointed out that after he started talking about the problems in the United States, he said that basically government is not the solution to our problems. Government is the problem. And then a few years later, he said the nine most fearful and dangerous words in the English language were, I'm from the government and I'm here to help. I remember that. Yeah. And and at the same time, Margaret Thatcher in England, who thought very much like Ronald Reagan when it comes to politics, said that there was no society. There were only individuals and their families and individuals and families had to take care of themselves first. So this whole notion that government is a problem and that families had to take care of themselves first was symbolic of major political changes and shifts that were that were starting to occur during the 1980s. There was a big anti-tax movement in the United States. People were against taxes, felt that taxes were too high and that government was too big. So what happened was taxes went down, government couldn't maintain the programs that they had. And one of those programs was were these organized youth sports that park and recreation departments were not just providing spaces for, but they actually organized the programs. But their budgets got cut and the programs started to fade. And at that particular time, parents thought, well, parents with resources thought we better get going and, and create our own programs. And parents did. But also there were what I call youth sport entrepreneurs who entered the scene and said, we're going to create the best kinds of sport programs that your kids could participate in. We're going to emphasize skills and excellence. We're going to make sure that the programs are really structured, that your kids are going to move to the next level and be able to compete and be successful. And by the way, they're going to be successful in life too. We're going to prepare them to qualify for scholarships in college, maybe even professional contracts. And we want you to start these kids early in highly specialized programs so that they really learn a sport. And in order to get parents to buy into that, they had to convince parents that specialization was the way to go. And the reason they had to do that was they were making their living in youth sports, and they needed parents to be paying dues 12 months a year. So they created this whole narrative that justified not just specialization, but early childhood specialization, starting at six, seven years old and going all the way through adolescence. So that was a major change in the way youth sports operated.
So, and there were other factors that encouraged parents to put their kids in those programs because at that particular time, the definition of a good parent changed. And a good parent during the 1980s and beyond was someone who knew about and controlled the whereabouts and behavior of their children 24-7. And they were seen as the creators of their kids. So to the extent that kids were successful in visible, culturally valued activities, they were defined as good parents. In other words, they had moral worth as parents. And the more their kids succeeded, the more moral worth they had. If their kids failed, that was a threat to their moral worth. And that changed the way parents looked at their kids' involvement in organized youth sports. It became important to parents. You've said before, you've given an example of when you were a child in sports and and that progression, I, I found to be very interesting how it's gone from, are you lucky to have Jay as, as your child to, you know, how did you create Jay the super superstar? Right. Yeah, and that that kind of shows what happened between the 1950s and the 1990s, basically. You know, when I was playing Little League Baseball and some other organized sports, my parents never went to a game. Uh, but when I did well, people found out about it, and they'd go to my parents and say, you're really lucky to have Jay as your son. And, you know, especially in a, on a Little League team that was really successful in Chicago at the time. And then when I became a parent and my kids were playing mixed doubles in tennis and went down to Albuquerque from Colorado Springs to play in the finals for the regional to go to, to go to Forest Hills. This was a big deal for them. They were 17 and 16 years old and they drove our van down there. Nancy and I couldn't go and they lost, but people would come up to us when they saw Dennis and Danielle play tennis and they'd say, you must really be proud of your kids. And I'd say, sure we are. And then when Tiger Woods in 1997 won the Masters, people went up to Earl Woods and said, how did you create a tiger? So in two generations, parents went from being lucky to have a kid who was playing sports and having a good time to being proud, Mm -hmm. to being the creator of child prodigies. And Richard Williams, They asked him the same thing. When Venus and Serena started to win, they came to Richard Williams and said, how did you create these phenoms? In fact, Richard Williams was the first person in the USA Tennis Hall of Fame because he created Venus and Serena. So that that recast parents from being an occasional spectator to maybe cheering their kids here and there and being proud of them to actually creating yeah, right. I know that I have I have felt the the pressure that if you're not at every single game and contributing in some way, you obviously don't love your children. And right. it's it's a very interesting dynamic. You're not nurturing your children's sport dreams. You know, I <laughs> you know, there's a lot of kids whose sport dreams shouldn't be nurtured in the way that they're being nurtured. That, you know, they should be playing in a variety of different activities so that they just learn to love physical activities because they're probably never going to get a scholarship and they're certainly not going to make a national team or play a professional sport. But a lot of parents think that that's the goal. And that's going to make them look good. So they oftentimes push their kids in ways that kids shouldn't be pushed. And even if you don't 
if, if you don't push them directly, I know parents who talk so highly of their children and their achievements in, in a certain sport that they really feel the pressure anyway, even though it's not, you know, you have to practice or you, you know, our whole world is revolving around this. You need to do well. I think the pressure still in subtle ways is felt when, and parents don't even realize it. Right. Yeah. There's a real thin line between encouragement and support on the one hand and pushing and pressure on the other. And in fact, there is a social psychologist at Utah State, Travis Dorsch, and he and his students have done research on youth sports. And one of the things they point out is that kids are less satisfied with their sport experiences the more money their parents spend on sport. That because, is a great quote right feel, there. They feel that pressure. And they're really they're really in a, in a tough spot because on the one hand, they feel gratitude towards their parents mm -hmm. because their parents are doing all, all these things for them. But on the other hand, they start to feel pressure. And by the time they hit 13 years old or older and are concerned with their own autonomy and you know developing new identities and everything else related to major developmental tasks, they feel trapped. Yeah. And that's when dropout occurs, burnout occurs, and, and a lot of kids injure out mm -hmm. because they're not, they're not into it the way they should be in order to play in ways where injuries are less likely to occur. You know, I, I'd like to share a, a personal story, as you know, my daughter playing in Boston College, and I, I didn't care whether she played soccer. I, at all, anywhere. She certainly was talented enough to play any sport she wanted to. And I thought I wasn't putting any pressure on her at all. And things like, and this never really occurred to me, but I went to Boston College. So we started by going to their ID camps and, you know, just because it was, it was something that I knew. And I think what happened was I was, you know, my face would light up with memories of Boston College and playing tennis. And, well, you know, wasn't it great? And isn't it? And, and while I tried very hard not to put pressure or say, you know, you have to play in college or anything like that, or really, you know, why don't you just have a real life instead? It's really not that pleasant playing D1 soccer. But I think she, I think she wanted me, you know, to be proud of her. She wanted, she saw me light up and, and, and associated that with going to Boston College. And so those types of things, I think parents need to be a little more aware of because they're so not on our radar on our radar and yeah. kids in my opinion kids who've been playing elite sports have been exposed to things so they seem more mature in some ways and so maybe you're not you're, you're not treating them like they are your little son or daughter who is looking up to you for approval and and acceptance and and all of that but really are underdeveloped in other areas Right. And, and, you know, this happens in these so-called skills and excellence programs that are the high cost pay to play travel club programs where coaches and managers expect total commitments from families. But what happens, and, and this is the word they use, you're in a pipeline. Oh, yeah. And and that pipeline is supposed to take you where you want to go. But that pipeline is also something that precludes other kinds of experiences and the development of other identities. So even though you're 
a lot of people are paying attention to you and your parents are being dedicated to your development and everything else, you you end up in this pipeline where you are developmentally delayed unless somebody's paying special attention to this and giving you other opportunities to develop other experiences, relationships, and identities that are not connected with your sport. Clubs have become kind of like factories, get as many people in the in the doors as they can, push them through to make sure that we collect as much as we can. And the more you pay, the more you play. Right. Are yes. Some things and to be considered. Yeah. So kids are playing two seasons a year. They're, then or they're more. In, <laughs> or more. They're in camps during vacation times. And then there's special tournaments on holidays and so on. So the, the kids, even though they may be having a fun time with their teammates or whatever, they're really missing out on a lot of other things. And that, that can create some developmental problems when they hit 18 to 24 years old, and they have to go through some makeup development at that time. Absolutely. Well, let's get a little more academic and let's start talking about youth sports have been separated into three main models. Could you explain the models and categories and how they're organized? Yeah, well, that's my classification and other people might have their own. But but as, as I've tried to explain, uh, youth sports and youth sport experiences to students and to other people, coaches and so on, I've divided youth sports into these three categories, a skills and excellence model, a physical literacy and lifelong participation model, and a growth and development model. And each of those models has organized youth sports in different ways and for different purposes. And we've been talking a little bit about the skills and excellence model, but basically the skills and excellence model emphasizes what I call a performance ethic which consists of a set of ideas and beliefs that emphasize the quality of sport experience in terms of improvement, skill development, and competitive success. And fun in those programs is defined in terms of getting better and being ranked and having a good win-loss record and looking forward to future mobility prospects within your sport, moving up to the next level. And that's, that becomes the focus in a skills and excellence program. And a lot of parents who started to define being a good parent in terms of the success of their kids that they're able to create, those parents saw these travel teams, despite their cost, as being the context within which their kids could become successful, and they could increase their moral worth as parents, despite the fact that they spent $70,000 on an SUV, have given up dinner time, given up weekends, given up vacations, all of which focus on making sure that your child is getting the right experiences in a skills and excellence program. That's that's one of the models. The Another model that that is being developed right now, it's never really gotten a lot of traction in the United States, is what I call the physical literacy and lifelong participation model. And that I'm using Project Play as the epitome of that particular model, where basically Project Play is saying that we need to create a form of, of organized youth sports that is accessible 
to all kids, regardless of their zip code and, you know, the, the amount of money that their family has, and regardless of their abilities. And what we're going to do is we're going to emphasize the development of physical literacy up through age 12. We're not going to have nationwide tournaments, regional tournaments. That doesn't mean we're not going to compete, but we're going to compete in small-sided games in ways that Kids have a lot of different movement experiences, and we're going to give them a chance to engage in spontaneous play. We're going to give them a chance to play some informal games in connection with our practices so that they learn the kinds of things that will lead them to develop a love and a sense of ownership of physical activities in their lives, which are going to enable them to make choices when they hit adolescence in terms of what they want to specialize in. And it's going to keep them active for their entire lives. So that's that's the physical literacy and lifelong participation model. The other one is the growth and development model, which a lot of people haven't heard about. Other people refer to it as sport for development programs. And these are programs that well-meaning adults create where they want to bring sport to a region of the world where kids don't have opportunities to play because of resource deprivation and wars or famines or natural disasters. And they bring a sport from their developed country into these developing regions of the world in order to give kids a chance to learn whatever it is that sport is supposed to teach them. And in wealthy countries, these sport for development programs are really interventions in poor areas, uh, low-income areas of the United States, where kids don't have opportunities to play organized sports, and in some cases where kids are getting into trouble, and people feel that they need some kind of structured activity to get the kids off the streets and make sure that they're learning the kinds of things that are going to turn them into productive citizens. So that growth and development model has been predicated on on what I call the great sport myth. You know, that that sport is essentially pure and good. And if we can get kids participating in it, they're going to share in that purity and goodness. And that's going to contribute to individual development, the development of a community, and everything is going to be wonderful. All problems can be solved if we just get kids in sports. Well, then wouldn't the U.S. be in a better position right now? <laughs> Yeah, that, that would be one, one evaluative criteria that you might use. And, <laughs> and one of the problems with many of those programs is that they have no theory of change. They have no methodology related to a theory of change. And now there is some new programs that are being developed that do have theories of change. You know, what do we want to do? And how are we going to do it? What's the methodology? And they actually go into these areas and they study the areas first to learn about how those communities work, how those regions work, so that when they come in with activities, what they want to do is they want to have develop self-learning kinds of opportunities for everybody in the community, including the kids. And they treat those participants as citizens rather than just people playing sports. And they want to tie the activities that they're engaged in to other things that are going on in the community. 
so that they're developing a sustainable form of community integration that will benefit the entire community. So we can talk more about that, but those are the three different approaches to organized youth sports. The skills and excellence approach is the one that's hegemonic or, or dominant in the United States right now. It's interesting that we think that sports will just deliver some of the, these qualities to the players just by playing the sport. And we don't take into consideration how they're playing the sport, how they're introduced to the sport, how they're coached. Sports can make a big impact in an individual, in a society, but I think it's not as simple as just introducing it. Very interesting. Now, we've just assumed that sport is going to have automatic developmental outcomes associated with it. And I've played enough organized sport in my life to know that that's not true. You know, when I was an adolescent, I used to work out at a settlement house gym in Chicago. And some of the kids who went there basically planned the next gang fight or burglary at the gym. Oh. I mean, this was during the late 1950s, early 1960s. And my father had a drive-in on the northern just a hamburger place on the northern part of Chicago. And I can remember we had steel rods inside because when a gang war would break out in the parking lot or nearby, we'd stick those steel rods in the door handles so that people couldn't come into to the drive-in to protect ourselves. The problem at that particular time was people were just assuming that if you got kids off the street playing sports, good things were going to happen. But that was not always the case. The so, leadership definitely directs a lot of that, don't you think? For sure. It's the leadership, but it's also the, the total context within which young people are playing sports. We've got to be intentional about what we want kids to learn. And that's where the theory and the methodology comes in. You know, if you just go out there and say, I'm a coach, mm -hmm. and because I've played the sport before, and you don't know anything about how kids develop, what are the different developmental tasks that they go through at different ages, how to make the sport age appropriate, you know, how to design your sport for development to fit in with where the kids are developmentally, then you're just, you're just betting that some good things are going to happen and not knowing why or how. Mm -hmm. Now, you've created the seven-stage long-term athlete development model? Well, I haven't created it, but oh, okay. yeah, the LTAD model, the long-term athlete development model was actually created by Istvan Bailey from Canada. He was a Hungarian social scientist, and he was looking at child development and trying to figure out how we could create sport activities and physical activities generally that would be consistent with where kids were developmentally so that over time they could develop not just a high level of physical literacy, but also a love for the sport so that they would maybe then be motivated to develop excellence. And he tried to sell this. He was at the National Coaching Institute in Canada in British Columbia, and he tried to sell this to the Canadian coaches of the national teams, and they weren't going to have anything of it. This is in the late 1990s, right around 2000. And when Canada went to the Olympics in 2004 and did very poorly, 
uh, the coaches all came back. They were discouraged. And then they started to listen to this guy who was telling them that they had to restructure their developmental programs. And they started to do so. And they became increasingly successful because kids stayed in the developmental programs longer. There was a bigger pool of talent to draw from for their national teams. Their athletes were more motivated. And so LTAD became popular in Europe before it became popular in North America, and it never really became popular in the United States. They had to, the United States had to develop their own LTAD, and, and they called it the American Development Model, and it was developed by USA Hockey, and they developed it because their developmental programs were losing kids. Yeah. And over a number of years in the early 2000s, 30% of their kids in the developmental programs dropped out. So the people from USA Hockey had done their research, gone around the world, talked with the LTAD people from Canada, and they developed the American development model, which stressed small-sided games, informal games, play. Instead of skating the whole length of the ice, they turned the ice into three ice rinks going the width of the rink rather than the length, which was smart because these little kids had little legs and they were, <laughs> the rink wasn't scaled to them physically. And by the way, there's a good story on that. They took a bunch of coaches and parents out to a lake where they had set up a hockey space on the ice that had the same relationship to the leg length ratio and the, and the height of the parents as the full length hockey rink had to the leg length ratio and the height of the kids. And they said, okay, parents and coaches, go out and play. And the parents looked, they could hardly see the goal on the other end of the rink. And they said, well, this is going to be no fun. And the people from USA Hockey said, well, this is what you're making your kids do. And they did the same thing that. in USA Volleyball. You know, they raised the height of the net they they pushed the bound the you know the the end lines out and and the parents and coaches looked at the volleyball court and said this is going to be no fun and john kessel from usa volleyball said well this is what you're making these kids do so he lowered the net he brought in the end lines he changed the ball that they played with and all of a sudden the kids started loving volleyball because it was age appropriate and size appropriate. Those are the kinds of things that are tied with this physical literacy model that Project Play is trying to deliver to as many communities as possible in the United States right now. So Jay, with, with the popularization of the skills and excellence model, um, what are the problems with that? And, and do parents have another option? A number of parents are starting to feel the problems associated with, with the skills and excellence model because of the high cost and because their, their kids are feeling pressure and, and a number of parents are sensitive to that. Their kids are burning out, they're dropping out, they're experiencing injury rates that should not be experienced by 10 to 14-year-old kids and serious injuries in many cases that require long rehab programs and so on. So there are parents who are dissatisfied with some of the programs, the skills and excellence programs. They're, they're also uh, sensitive to this hyper-specialization. They know that that's not good for their kids. And some of the kids 
who are dropping out are turning to alternative sports where they have control over their activities, where they can be creative and spontaneous, where they can engage in age-integrated kinds of participation opportunities, where they can learn from older kids, and older kids can teach the younger kids. And, you know, I don't want to idealize some of these kinds of situations, but that does happen at skateboard parks and at BMX parks and, and courses. So kids are resisting the skills and excellence model in many cases. Parents want to find alternatives, and there aren't alternatives right now. You know, there are some park and recreation programs that that run things on kind of a recreational level, but a lot of the young people see them as second class, and they don't want to get involved in them. You know, the it's the travel teams that are the high priority things, and if you're not in them, there's no sense participating in organized sports. Well, you know, Project Play is trying to come in and provide alternatives, create alternatives, ask kids what they want, provide local programs where kids can ride their bikes to a practice rather than having parents chauffeur them around, and train coaches so that coaches give kids opportunities to develop physical literacy and to develop a love of physical activities where kids learn locomotive skills. For example, walking, running, hopping, jumping, skipping, swimming, operating on ice, you know, on snow. And, you know, the the people I've seen who do physical literacy training with young people, what I've learned and I've participated in some of these programs is we don't learn all of these different kinds of moves, even running. You know, you don't learn how to run sideways. You don't learn how to run backwards. So, you know, there's, there's different ways to run and there's different ways to engage in locomotive skills and body management skills, which basically are bending and stretching, landing, rolling, twisting and turning, swinging and climbing, lifting, dodging, falling. You know, I remember when I was in one of these uh, physical literacy learning things, I had unlearned how to fall. You know, I could still do certain kinds of things, but when I fell, I fell hard. And so learning how to fall is absolutely crucial, along with all of those other things which are not being taught in a lot of youth sport programs. And then you have object control skills that are throwing, catching, kicking, striking, bouncing, dribbling, and so on. And when you look at these specialized programs for kids in the skills and excellence settings, they're not learning 80% of that. Even though they're, they're learning specific soccer skills, they're not fully physically literate. And parents are starting to become aware of that. And Project Play is going into communities and showing parents, teachers, business leaders, educators, and other stakeholders in the community that there's a different way to organize youth sports that will basically develop the youth assets in a community. And communities are starting to go for this. Mm -hmm. What would you say if someone said, well, isn't that what PE in school is supposed to do of those things? Yeah. And it is supposed to do that. PE programs have done cut. They've, you know, kids 
maybe do PE twice a week for an hour. And half of that time, the poor physical educators just trying to get them organized. You know, another quarter of the time is standing in line waiting to do this or that. And a lot of physical educators have not been trained in how to teach physical literacy. You know, oftentimes physical education is a sport-oriented activity where you throw a ball out there and you have kids playing a sport rather than looking at the basic movement development needs of those kids and going through all of those different movements that I've mentioned that are listed on the physical literacy, National Physical Literacy Association website and teaching kids all of those things so that they can make choices about what kinds of sports they want to play. And they're going to have the ability to play those sports and the confidence to play them. Are there any organized sports that are doing it well? Well, this is, you know, the, the American development model in the United States is being embraced by the US OPC, the United States Olympic, uh, Para, Olympic and Paralympic Committee. And they're trying to get all of the 50 different national governing bodies in, for the different sports in the United States to embrace the American development model, which does emphasize physical literacy, by the way. And they're having a hard time because a lot of coaches are resistant because this isn't the way they learn to coach. And a lot of parents aren't, aren't sold on it because they think that developing a skill that doesn't connect with lacrosse directly or with soccer directly or hockey directly is a waste of time. And they're not going to be able to make it to the next level. So it has taken 10 years, American development model, to be initially embraced by some people in some federations. Wow. And by the way, the coaching director at the USOPC, Chris Snyder, is a big fan of the American development model and of project play and the physical literacy and lifelong uh, participation model. And he spends most of his time trying to get the coaches in the various development programs in the national governing bodies to reorganize their developmental programs. It seems there are some great programs like project play and John O'Sullivan has Changing the Game, the, the Positive Coaching Alliance. There's a lot of organizations out there trying to make a difference. Would they make more of an impact if everyone came together and consolidated goals, efforts? It just seems like there's a lot of great programs out there that are kind of spot treating, right. as it were. Yeah, that's a really good point because the United States doesn't have a national sport ministry or a national a, a sport minister. We don't have a cabinet position related to sport. So what we have in the United States when it comes to youth sports is a highly fragmented, disconnected, dysfunctional, in many cases, system. There's no unity. There's no set of guidelines. And, you know, the United people like local control in the United States, but uh, you know, back in the 19, late 1980s, when the UN signed the Commission on Children's Rights for around the world and had countries sign on to that, the United States was one of two countries, Somalia was the other one, that didn't sign this, that basically laid out a set of guidelines that everybody who's doing youth sport programs should be following. 
And, you know, in the United States, we wanted to do it our way. Mm -hmm. And our way means that there's literally hundreds of different ways of, of it being done in the United States. And there's no general guidelines. And that's a major problem within the United States. Well, I look forward to talking to you more about that, because that's something that's that, as you know, is close to my heart. And I'd like to see a little bit of that change for the sake of our kids and young athletes. So, well, thank you so much, Jay, for talking with us today. We're very excited to get you back for next episode. Plenty to talk about when it comes Absolutely. to Absolutely. <laughs> so I enjoyed this one and we'll, we'll cover other things related to this in some of our subsequent discussions. Sounds wonderful. Thank you everyone else for joining us for this discussion on the organization and categorization of youth sports. If you like this video, please be sure to like, subscribe, and hit the bell to be notified of our next discussion with Dr. Jay Coakley on the important topics within sociology of sport. Thanks for listening. Make sure to leave us a five-star review and hit the follow button because there's more sport knowledge on the way. If you're interested in more information or want to engage in further conversation about these and other issues in sport, visit our website at spknmedia.com. To stay updated on all things SPKN, follow us on social media at spknmedia or email us at team at spknmedia.com and we'll be happy to welcome you to the SPKN community.